The views, information, or opinions expressed in the Cult for the Culture podcast are solely those of the individuals involved. The content presented is not a substitute for seeking or seeing a licensed mental health professional. Know what's up next, know what's up next. Healthy pleasure with it, Cult for the Culture. Better tune in, better tune in. Big sis, get him, big sis, get him. Cult for the Culture, Cult for the Culture, Cult. Hey y'all and welcome to the Cult for the Culture podcast. I am your host Tiana Renee, the Culture's Advocate. On this show, we interview individuals from different walks of life who are dedicated to being the change within the culture as it relates to various topics and their effects on the world of mental health. Today's show is about mental health and the black male genocide and we have a special guest. His name is James Johnson Malone, JD. He has taught criminal justice, American government, and student success classes of particular interest, constitutional law, the American court systems, and how they relate to people of color in the United States. I would like to welcome James Johnson Malone to the Cult for the Culture podcast. You're glad to know how you're doing. Good. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Honored to be here. Good. I'm glad you're here too. I'm actually very excited about this episode and I don't want to get too, too deep into it, but... Before we start, I always like to check in with my audience and see what their, not audience, but my guests and see what their favorite self-care practice is. So share with the audience what your favorite practice is. Well, my favorite self-care, well, I'm kind of new to this uh, self-care, why it is important to, you know, take care of yourself. But I guess my most important, my favorite self-care thing will probably be currently swimming. I like to swim. I love to swim uh, that and cooking. But I don't know if cooking is a self-care because, you know, it's a slippery slope. When you start off, it's like, this might be a good thing. And then, <laughs> you know, two pies and a couple of dozen cookies later. You know. Yeah, it's all about balance. Balance. Uh, yeah, all things in moderation. Yes, definitely. Yeah, but I, I would say that cooking is a self-care practice. I like to cook, too. But I do think it, yeah, I do think it goes into like, okay, now what are you making? And are you eating all this stuff in one sitting? Then that's where we got a problem. That's what you Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So, like I said earlier, the topic is about Black male genocide. And I realize even introducing it, it's a very heavy topic. So, I just want to put that out there from the beginning. I, I realize it's a very heavy topic. But also with it, I realize it's something that we don't need to shy away from because it's something that's affecting our culture right now every single day, every minute of every single day. And it's just something that I really wanted us to get into. So I know I know what my take is right now. I know we're not in a very good place as it relates to our Black and minority males and the climate as it relates to things like police brutality, criminalization, all these different things that we have and how it's affecting our culture specifically. And so I really wanted to know what your take is on, I know you are an advocate for this um, this population and just, you know, what's going on currently. So what is your take on the current co- climate as it relates to black male murders throughout our nation? Actually, um, uh, first of all, I want to say I'm not disputing the, uh, the climate, but the whole fact that it's a current climate, I don't think it's actually current. It's just been ongoing. And I can't take credit for this viewpoint because I know that has, it's the rise of social media. It's the digital age. It's always been out here. Mm-hmm. It's just becoming more, you know, you can see it. There's every other day, you know, you can go on Facebook, you know, go on various social media platforms. And you can see uh, black males, you know, people of color, but black males in particular being targeted and victimized. You use it to 
perpetuate the stereotype sometimes and that stereotype can justify the things in the mind of those who are actually doing the victimizations. I don't think it's a current climate. I just think that it may have been uh, some pushback. Uh, there has always been going back to reconstruction after you know the Civil War when you had uh, Black people, quote unquote, getting their freedom and getting their equality, equality in quotation marks, and a lot of pushback from white society or you could say that the society, uh, the, the, the individuals in power or those who control the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying it's not an issue, it's not a problem, it's just right. I think it's always been there. It's just that now you can see it more because we have more access, which is a good and a bad thing. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with you. I don't think that it is something like, oh, it just happened, like 2018, 2019, this is the thing. I definitely don't think that by any means. I do think right now, it is exacerbated because of social media, because of the media, because of technology and all the things exactly. that like it's nothing right now to be able to log on to social media and see someone being murdered by the police or see, you know, some act of violence. And it's like it's just second nature now. And I think the most recent and I know this isn't within our culture in particular, but it does relate to the topic. The most recent thing that we've seen in social media and on the media is the terrorist attacks or however they want to identify it where there was a mass shooting and he went live on Facebook. Have you heard about that one? Oh, New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. yeah. New Zealand. But it's like, it's so, it's so normal now for that to happen. And it just, it floors me because I'm like, why is it okay that we are able to record this one? Two, why is it okay that we're able to watch it? And three, why are people continuously like reposting it? What are we getting out of that? So I definitely agree with the social media part, but I say our current climate now because it's where where we are specifically and the right. only like realm that we can do anything about because we're living in the current time. And so that's why I said that the current climate, but I, I definitely agree with a lot of things that you said because it is, you know, it goes way back. We can't take that away and say that, oh, it just started today. No, it goes all the way back to slavery and before then, hell, biblical times if we want to get fancy. Right, so it's, it's, <laughs> it's, been, a, it's been a continuing... It's a, it's a line. It's like you say, it's a line that's been continuous, but right now you're looking at this particular, we are looking at this particular point on the line. So, you know, like you say, a timeline for a reason. But right now, this is our point on the line. You know, there was another point in reconstruction. There was a point during uh, the, the early 1900s. You know, there's a point in the 1960s. It's just like a line, and this is our particular point. Right, you're right. Yeah. And so with the, the fact that we can see the videos, so we we are exposed to this, whether we were there in person or not. We are able to see these things when we turn on the news, when we turn on social media. And I know that that has, I know the impact that it has on me and just being a trauma therapist and hearing the things that I hear daily. So I even try to monitor what I allow outside of work to hear because sometimes it can be too much. And I don't think that people take that into consideration. So it makes me wonder, you know, I'm a Black female, so I have my perspective. But for you as right. a black male, how do you manage the thoughts of being a potential target just based off your appearance and knowing how things are going right now? Honestly, I don't know. And with you being a therapist, you could probably address it more than I could. I could hear it from a personal viewpoint and the viewpoints I've heard from other black men. But it's funny that you put it like that because black men, and I'm not, I'm not the only one who, who is aware of this, we become hyper aware of who we are, where we are, what we're doing, 
making sure, you know, uh, we're not presenting ourselves in a certain way was kind of, I don't want to put it that way, but sometimes it is that way where I heard this kid, I don't know who it was, but basically, and I've heard it a lot. It's not just this one particular kid. When I said kid, I mean like this young black guy. He was like like late teens, early 20s. Right. And he's basically like, I'm just going through life just being my beautiful black self. And then something happens, you know, or someone becomes uh, disturbed by his presence or his appearance or he's somewhere where he, quote unquote, is not supposed to be. And that's the issue. So now it's not his issue, but it's the person or persons who's observing him. It's their issue, but because of their reaction, it becomes his issue. So by there, by default, it does become his issue because he has to do what he may deem necessary or what his parents may deem necessary, you know, i.e. the talk, yeah. you know, how to come out of that situation. Because it's not just, you know, the talk doesn't just apply to uh, to cops. It applies right. to everyone, you know, because you're uh, like myself. I'm a relatively large black man. I'm not like a hawking black man, but I'm not small either. Right. And I have a, a certain demeanor. I, I don't smile a lot. I don't grin. I, I look very serious, but people are like, you always look so angry. And I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm in my own little world. I can show you pictures of my daughter and my baby sister, and yeah. when they were babies, and they looked like they just want to, they're angry, and they're not angry, they're just, that's their facial expression. Right. And a lot of times I go through, and I'm not even, I'm something of an introvert, so I spend a lot of time in my own head, and a lot of times I'm not even paying attention to the people around me. Right, you're just managing. Right, and I'm just being me, and I'm just moving through the world, you know, moving through the world, being my beautiful black self, to, to quote the young brother, and you happen to come out of that for a minute, and you see people reacting to you, and I'm not paying you any mind, but now because of your reactions, I have to react to what you're doing to make sure that I'm straight to not, quote unquote, trigger you that will cause a series of events that may end up, I mean, with me losing my life or other black men similarly situated losing their lives because it's not our issue, it's your issue. And I say right. your is the other of person. The culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But now because of your reactions and going back to the media, how black men are portrayed in the media as dangerous and mm-hmm. thugs and we're this and we're that. Hoodlums now, and what's the right. other word that they use? Ah, whenever thugs, we, there's another one when we do like riots and I cannot think it'll come to me later, but there are many names that they use, of course. <laughs> so many, but then you have to be aware like, um, like today, for instance, I went swimming before, you know, we, we got together and I went swimming. I looked crazy I got, you know, I got the hoodie on. My eyes are bloodshot red from the chlorine. Yeah. I I haven't shaved because it's the weekend. Mm -hmm. And all I want, I'm like, I'm going to Starbucks to get a white mocha. I'm all excited because I haven't had a white mocha. I'm going to get my little (laughs) white mocha. And I'm coming down the street and I see this this lady with her kids. You know, she's got a toddler and a a baby. Mm -hmm. And she jumps and runs across the street. And I'm like, I'm not even thinking about you. I'm just trying to get to my white mocha. You are the least of my concerns, right. but it happens a lot, Yeah, you know, and uh, you know this saying, you've heard it, it's the death from a thousand little cuts or, mm-hmm. and I can't remember the exact quote, it was, uh, it was a black psychologist years ago 
he or it might have even been she or he or she. Well, let's say they. Yeah. They mentioned how uh, when you're going through life as a black man, all of these little slights begin to add up. Right. You know, because it starts to take a toll. Right. You know, it's, but it's not your problem, but their problem becomes your problem because you know they're like, oh, it's a you know it's a dangerous black man. And you and you could be the, the nicest, friendliest black man, and you literally once again you're not even thinking about them, but you have to be aware of them mm-hmm. and how they react for your own safety, which is insane to me. Yeah, and it's insane to me. And just sitting here and listening, like I know how hard it is as a black woman and what that can look like, and you know the attention that we do or do not get, and the stereotypes, the angry black woman, all of that. You yes. know, because in in my resting face, any given day. People, you know, excuse my language, would say that I have a resting bitch face. And that's just because I'm just chilling. I'm not mad at anyone. You know, nothing is going on. And I know how that feels for me when people are like, well, just smile. And it's like, well, I don't really have anything to smile right right now. I'm I'm just cool and everything's fine. I'm not mad. I'm not upset or anything. I'm just I'm just being me at this moment. And so I know how that is for me. But hearing you talk about it and having to worry about even like just walking down the street and being a threat to somebody's safety when there's they're not even a thought. It's not something you have considered. All you had in mind was, I'm going to get my white mocha. I had a good day. I did my self-care. I'm making sure that I'm okay, right? And then you walk down the street and you have this issue, but it's it's something that happens every single day. And even if you're not a black male, you see it. You can't Mm -hmm. ignore it. It happens every day. We all walk down the street. We all go to the mall. Even, you know, if you see somebody that looks a certain way and you feel uncomfortable, like, how does that affect? An individual, and I heard you say the the tiny little cuts, but it's like it almost makes you have to be on edge all the time for something that you didn't even create. You're being hyper vigilant, and you shouldn't have to be. Hyper vigilance over a period of time does take a toll because you're always on edge. Mm-hmm. Yes, and for those that don't know what hyper vigilance means, it's it's a word that we use a lot in the trauma world, but it essentially just means that you're consistently on edge and preparing for something to happen, regardless of if you have anything to give you clues that it would happen, if that makes sense. Right. It's like being in constant non, you know, you're you're in constant flight or flight, flight yes. or flight mode mm-hmm. all the time. You're ready. Yep. You're ready for anything, even if it's not happening. And so that, I mean, I have anxiety and I know what anxiety feels like for me. I can only imagine the anxiety being a black male walking down the street. Like, what is your experience with that? Well, um, like I said, I don't really worry about the anxiety so much. I try to, like I said, I don't want to, use, I'm trying to think of a polite, politically correct way to say it, but basically it's like. <laughs> we're, we're very transparent here on the show. We're very open <laughs> and we recognize that everybody has their own individual views. So do share. No, it's kind of like, you know, screw, you, know, screw, you, screw all of y'all. Because yeah. that's not my problem. And I mean, cause I've been giving us a lot of thought lately and, you know, looking at history, like going going back to our, you know, our timeline and our points on the timeline, every single point, you know, even though black men have been portrayed as these, these predators, you know, super predators, dangerous to society, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, especially to, you know, because we have to protect 
use it for example, the white woman because she is the pinnacle, you know. So we have to protect her the yes. most. But do you know? Reality, and not to cut you off, I just like I'm reading a book. I was talking about this with another guest recently. I'm reading a book called Rage Becomes Her, and there's this whole chapter about like being angry and what that looks like. But then they break down the persona of the white female and how she's fragile and she has to be protected and she's victimized because of the fact that she's a white female. And so with you saying that, it's like, yep, this is something that I know is a fact because there's research on it. Yeah, but at the same time, this is only, and I have no research, that there are no studies. This is just Malone speaking as Malone, speaking for <laughs> Malone. But I would say that the white woman as relation to the black man is probably one of the most dangerous animals on the planet because of her ability to instigate and we have to protect her. And she is either an instigator of violence Mm -hmm. or she's the justification for the violence that they want to perpetuate on us anyway. Right. You know, Emmett Till. I was going to say Emmett Till. I'm glad you brought him up. No, because that's what happened. Yeah. Oh, you know, he harassed me. And how dare you, you know, you come after this sacred white flower. Yeah. Look at um, Birth of a Nation. That, mm-hmm. The whole thing about they just want our women. Right. Uh, uh, integration. Oh, you can't have little black. They want to come in here and, and harass our women. And they want to. No. When the reality because, is, it was the exact opposite. The exactly. exact opposite. Exactly. So now because of that, though, this is why you see it. I mean, you can like you say uh, white women fragility mm-hmm. and uh, their anger, you know, the whole I, let me see your manager, you know, is a meme and everything. But at the same time, there's a lot of truth to that. There's Absolutely. a lot of truth to that. Yep. When you consider like the backyard Beckys and. Oh, Matt, so you, you went there. I was going to. Yeah, go ahead. We're here now. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, because that's, you know, now they're being hyper vigilant and going back to what we were saying earlier about just moving through life, being your own beautiful black self, male or female. We're just sitting there like uh, 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 this, this, the sister what, at Harvard. I'm just sitting here doing my thing. I, I'm at Harvard. I'm at Harvard. Oh, I'm going to report you because I don't think you should belong here. That's the whole thing. Going back to that whole aspect of you don't belong here. Therefore, we must be hypervigilant to make sure if you see something, say something. Now, we use that now in the context of uh, being vigilant uh, against uh, terrorism, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But once upon a time, that goes back to the future of the slave act. Yeah. You know, making sure these Negroes aren't where they are supposed to be. Right. Or if you don't have the, pre- the proper paperwork or the, pre- the proper permissions to move through this particular area. So, I mean, so now it's, it's, it's evolved or you want to say devolved mm-hmm. beyond that to where how how dare you move through life? Going back to that saying, I wish I knew who it was, but you yeah. know, moving through life being your own beautiful black self, how dare you move through life without our permission? So therefore, if you are outside of this box, because you are being observed. Right. I mean, Whether you want to that. or not. Yeah. Exactly. Just based off the fact that you were born black. And it makes me think about the Khalif Browder story, which I finally started watching recently. Um, I had a lot of strong feelings about watching it because it, it was very close to home for me. And I recognized that it was probably going to bring out a lot of feelings. But within right. watching that, one of the things that really stood out to me was, I'm not, I'm not from New York, so I don't know everything about what goes on there. 
But apparently at one point in time, you may be able to speak on this because this was um, some years ago, but the... Stop and frisk. The stop and frisk, yeah. And yes. For any given reason, regardless if you did anything wrong, just walking down the street, it would be expected that you can be pulled over by a police officer and they could frisk you and search you with no probable cause. It's for safety reasons. We have to protect society. New York is cleaning up. We have to make sure that everybody's safe. Yeah. Right? Right. But once again, though, if we're the minority of the population, but we're 80 to 90% of the stops, we're being targeted. You know? I mean, we the minority, like, oh, the majority of marijuana possession arrests are for, you know, our our Black and Latino males. But of course, because we're the majority of the people being stopped and frisked. Right. More often than not, the best weed you can find is in the suburbs. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now, I was just having this conversation with somebody about how they've criminalized marijuana and they've criminalized weed. However, now we have opened the market to it. We've turned it into liquid form and, and can sell it in dispensaries, can sell it in gummy form, can sell it in you know the normal form and do all of that. But for years, we have criminalized mm-hmm. and sent young black boys, young black girls, minority, you know, and even some white males and females, probably not as much, but we oh, sent them right to to jail and and served long ridiculously long sentences around this but at the same time it's nothing to go to California or to Vegas or to DC or any of the other states where they've made it legal and to go into a dispensary without medical calls or anything of the sort where you actually need it but just for recreational use and it's fine but there are still boys behind bars right now waiting on trial for Drug charges. And that's not for me to say by any means that I promote, you know, for that to be the case and for, you know, people to commit crimes and not have to face the consequences. That's not what I'm saying by any means. But what I'm saying is if we're going to do it to be fair across the board and we're not being fair across the board and because we're not being fair across the board, now we're targeting a certain population and we're having to suffer and it's breaking down our culture. It's breaking down our families and it's just breaking us down as individuals. Which brings me to the point of how it affects the mental health. But before you go there, hold up for a second. I don't mean to cut across you, but uh, the point on the irony, like you said, uh, marijuana going mainstream, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, one of the things that they do when you're going through and you're trying to put up a dispensary, whether it's medicinal or recreational or whatever, or if you're trying to become part of this new uh, marijuana economy that's booming. Mm-hmm. It's definitely I mean, booming, yeah. One of the things they look at is your background. So imagine, so you can't even, depending on your background, uh, let's say if you have uh, any felonies in your background in, mm-hmm. your, in your past, you can't get involved in this industry. So therefore, and you know, like I know a, a, a majority of people that are in, in the criminal justice system for marijuana use and possession are black and brown people. Right. So therefore, even in, let's be honest, they have a tremendous amount of practical hands-on experience in this industry, but because of their, their they've been targeted rightfully or wrongfully uh, by, by law enforcement, they won't even be able to participate. And like you said, there are thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of people locked up for it now. And this industry has taken off. And one of the things that really uh, gets me is Boehner. John Boehner, he was in Congress for years. He was a Speaker of the House. Mm-hmm. He is, and he he passed, he passed a lot of, you know, he was down for a lot of the harshest drug laws that we've had. But 
The irony now is that he works for a group of individuals who are quote unquote cannabis entrepreneurs. Wow. <laughs> yes, yeah. But I just want to throw that out there because it's it's always been very ironic to me. Yeah, and, and knowledge is power. Cause I don't even think that I know who that is. Like the name sounds familiar, but besides that, you know, I don't know. And I think that's the biggest thing too for us as a culture is knowledge is power. And the more we know, the more that we're able to fight, the more we're able to advocate for ourselves. But there are so many areas where we unfortunately fall short just because we don't know. We don't know the laws. We don't know what our rights are. We don't know how to protect ourselves. We don't know just how to walk through life every day as a Black male or female. And I I definitely am an advocate for knowing more, educating yourself, even down to learning about yourself and how you're affected by these things that are happening every day around you and how it's shaping your perspective and who you are as an individual which is why it bothers me so much about the climate right now and that so many for the most minor things, even down to what they scared me, so I shot them. But that makes no sense. You're the one with the weapon. I'm sitting in my car with my child or I'm walking down the street or I'm just standing outside of, you know, a convenience store or I'm 14 years old and I'm, I'm, I'm just playing outside. Like in, (laughs) <laughs> and to know that, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because it's just like, it baffles me that those things, just part of being a human, part of being a person, daily activities that everybody else does and never has to worry about is something that we consistently have to carry around with us. And what, you know, in the trauma world, we call our invisible suitcase, which is essentially is just all the life experiences that you've had packed into one suitcase and you carry that around with you go, which other people will call baggage, essentially. Yep. And that's, and, and that's the problem because we do have that baggage and we do carry it around, but somehow it becomes our problem. And like you said, you touched on it. I fear for my life because that goes into that larger picture as uh, people of color and particularly our people. We've always been painted as these, you know, threatening, dangerous, uh, hyper, you know, super strong, super fast, you know, super violent. Uh, it's just our nature. When this first started off, when Black Lives first started, and one of the things, ironically, it was one of the top cops, if not the top cop in New York. And I wish I could think of his name off the top of my head. And the whole I fear for my life uh, argument comes up on national TV. He made the statement of, well, you have to take into account that black people have a propensity for violence. So he's now this is like one of the D top cops. And I tell you that that attitude and that mentality has permeated. And the reason why you hear a lot of people saying more and more often the uh, I fear for my life thing is you're seeing cops getting away with it all the time. I fear for my life. You're a trained professional. You have a gun, a taser, a nightstick, a baton, whatever you want to call it, a shotgun in the trunk. You have all this equipment, but somehow, some way. But it goes back to with black people being hyper violent and super strong and we're seen as being bigger, faster, you know, the whole like whatever you want to call it. We're we're the superhumans, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore I have to take because of your because of our superhuman nature, we have to, you know, when I say we, I mean the people who are doing the killing have to take superhuman steps to protect themselves from us. Right. We're but so therefore, that's why it's justified. Like the guy in Florida, you, you touched on it. He threw it out there. Now, once you realize the whole picture, this guy started the fight. He started. He he started the situation. He escalated it, but because 
you know, stand your ground laws, mm-hmm. basically they don't really take it to account, not all, but they don't take it to account the fact that if you are an instigator, if you if the situation starts going against you, even if you are the instigator, you still can have that legitimacy of I fear for my life. When I say legitimacy, I mean that in quotation marks sarcastically. Right. Because it's there's no legitimate a reason. Yeah. It's a cop out. You know, like when the police, I fear for my life. And it's like this guy didn't even have a weapon. Mm-hmm. This guy had a cell phone. This guy had a cigarette lighter. Right. You know, pick the random object, you know, mm-hmm. but because of who we are and we're and how a lot of times society portrays us, yeah, it becomes okay to take these these extreme actions against us. And I don't mean it's legitimately okay, no. but that's the perception that it's okay. They've made it okay and they've made it excusable. And the the thing that always throws me off about us being the most violent, us being the biggest, the strongest, the fastest, is if you if we take it back all the way back to slavery, and I know people are like, y'all are always bringing up slavery because it has meaning. Yeah. We were bred. And when I say bred, and I know that you know this, but for some of our audience members that may not know, we were, of course, they separated our families. They put the strongest male with the strongest female. They bred us together to make sure that we could create Again, stronger children. And then, not on, even on top of that, for the stronger males that they created, they made them fight each other to the death. Yep. So this is a system that was created and systems don't disappear. Even if it's not something that we're currently doing, that mentality is the same. It transfers from generation to generation. Our genes are what our genes are at this point. We can't do anything about that. But the mentality, I think, still stays the same. And so you're so scared of something that you created. But you had the choice. And I know I can't penalize anyone right now for those choices because none of us were alive back then. But those are things that we have to take in consideration that does play an effect, or play a role on what we're doing right now or how things are going. Well, a lot of times you see that when um, they, I'm not really big into sports, but I do know they have this thing where when they have prospective players for uh, football in particular, they come out and they, they gaze them and look at them the same way that uh, they did back in the day. It's, yeah. it's not as blatant. It's more subtle now. But those uh, those systems do have a foundation going back to slavery. And uh, I, I'm, I'm taking particular, like the, Ab- the Aborigines in Australia just got several billion dollars in reparations because this Australia has acknowledged the fact that them, you know, uh, outsiders coming to Australia and colonizing it basically destroyed the aboriginal culture almost you know entirely wow. they're still around and yeah. people still, we, know, we know but they, their original culture has been almost completely destroyed by colonization so in the ever and the ongoing impacts and that's one of the things people say oh slavery was such you know so long ago get over it slavery was it was not that long ago <laughs> it wasn't that long ago and in fact if you if you look at it from 1441 when the, I can't remember which pope it was, but when the pope gave permission to Portugal to go into Africa and initiate the transatlantic and the African slave trades, it hasn't been that long. So you think from 1441 to uh, the end of American slavery, which was 1865, mm-hmm. that's over 400 years. And right. you think about it, it's, it was, this is 2019. Slavery ended in 1865, or depending on 1863, how however you want to look at it. Right. You know, so... But that's less than 200 years. And then if you take take into account the systems that were put in place because, oh, you know, you had the 13th, the 14th Amendment, you know, in the slavery, uh, 14th equal rights, 15th right to vote. 
But at the same time, if you look at the fine print, slavery has been abolished except for dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. So if you've been convicted of a crime, technically you can still be enslaved. So has slavery Through the really prison ended? system, yeah. Exactly. Because there's still institutionalized racism. Yep. Oh, yes. Yes. I did a whole show around that. So I know there, yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It really is. And it just baffles me. And, you know, I won't take away, and I I don't want this to seem like like a bashing session and we're saying like, no, like people no. are all wrong and, you know, people are doing this and people outside of the black culture or the minority culture don't understand and they're, they're not making efforts. I won't say that because I do know, you know, they have started training officers to have, a certain level of awareness and understanding as far as it relates to mental health. They are creating CIT officers around the world where they know how to address certain issues and not to necessarily go to violence first. Like they know to right. assess, they know what to look for, they know whether or not this person struggles with mental health, whether or not they're in a current crisis and how to manage that. And so I will give them credit for that as much as, right. you know, we have plenty of allies and plenty of people who are advocating for us and protesting and making sure that we get equal rights. Yeah, there's Black Lives Matter, but there are still other races within Black Lives Matter who are committed to the cause and committed to making sure that we get the rights that we deserve. But even within that, it makes me wonder about what needs to happen within our legal system to make it less of what it is now. And, you know, you have more of a law perspective than what I do, and I, I don't know all of them. I will admit that I don't know too, too much about the legal system um, I know enough to get around, but outside of that, what do you feel like needs to happen to not make this as big of an issue and for us to feel more protected as a culture and not have to worry about, you know, having these conversations with our young black males about when you go outside, you have to do this, you have to present a certain way. This is how you need to talk to this person. This is how you navigate this situation. Like it breaks my heart that we have to have those conversations. So how would it look for there to be some kind of reform to make it better for us? I'm a skeptic. And I had a professor one time who told me basically, um, you know, I've been accused of being a pessimist when it comes to a lot of stuff, especially criminal justice. Right. Uh, but I had a professor one time, he called me, you know, we, we had this discussion and during the class discussion about my skepticism. And he said, basically, now that we've even thought about it, that James, a skeptic is nothing more than a frustrated idealist. Mm -hmm. So I believe in certain ideals and I want to believe in certain ideals, to put it more accurately. However, at the same time, uh, without being negative, and I know sometimes my, my, my viewpoints do come across as negative, we have to navigate the system that we're in because you have the ideals and you have the realities. You have the ideals. This, this is what you want. This is what we should strive for. But then also, too, you have the ideal that you have to navigate through and, and live in in your day-to-day. -day. Mm -hmm. So because of that, I would like to say um, it could change and I would like to, I would hope for it to change. But because I know of uh, the system evolution and I know the justice, even taking it outside of a black white paradigm, there's always been certain inequalities within the law. But also too, I want to, to, to point out that a lot of it does because the laws change as society changes yeah. and as societal viewpoints change. But at the same time, as we've been saying this whole conversation, there are certain aspects of how people of color 
are misportrayed, mm-hmm. are misrepresented, you know, in the media and society in general, that because of those misrepresentations and is not necessarily within our power to change it, is uh, it's, it's, it's the the responsibility, I will say, and this is only me speaking for me, I'm not speaking for you or any of your affiliates, that's, that's a disclaimer, right? right. Uh, <laughs> they have to have this thing where they're going to have to change. I used to, when I was younger, when I was in school and I was doing my philosophy and political studies and all that stuff, I was just, you know, slightly... I was not, definitely not as calm as I am now, and I was maybe a little bit angry, but it would call for, uh, I, was, I would call it a massive societal lobotomy or just, you know, burning everything down and starting over. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm not saying that we as a collective, when I say we as a collective, I mean people of color and black mm-hmm. people in particular, we as a collective, we have certain responsibilities. Uh, there's things that we can do as a people to change and make change. But also at the same time, a lot of it is not even our responsibility going back to the same young brother. And I wish I knew his name, who we're just trying to move through this world. We're just trying to move through life. And a lot of it is how others choose to misrepresent us and choose to see us for who we are. Right. Right. So it's on them. And I know I'm giving you this long drawn out answer. No, it's perfect. I have hopes because I, I have I have children. Uh, hopefully, I have grandchildren one day. I have little ones that I love dearly, and I want a better world for them. Right. But you have this thing where the criminal justice system is not always justice, and a lot of times, like I have this thing, and I can't take credit. I had a professor. He asked us like the first day of class. What do you consider justice? And everybody gave the different definitions of what they consider to be justice. You know. Um, and then he's like, flip to this page here. And even the author of the book that we were working for this working out of for this particular class, they spoke on how justice, no one clearly knows what justice is. You know, some people say it's an eye for an eye. It was, it's, you know, it's retribution. So right. if I can get my retribution, then I can get justice. But is that really, is that really justice? Yeah. Uh, some people say rehabilitation is justice. You take the, the, the criminal and sometimes, and I'm not going, I'm not, I don't want to go all pop psychology and say that, Oh, because of how you were treated as a kid, this is why you're a criminal now, because I'm not always a big fan of that particular uh, viewpoint either. Right. But a lot of times is you can rehabilitate the criminal and make them a productive member of society because right. we owe a debt to them as well. I'm mm-hmm. not saying everyone can be redeemed, but if you if your person can be redeemed, redeem them. But in the last few years, not the last few years, but more prevalently in the last few years, I said last few years, I meant in maybe the last quarter century to a half century, uh, we have definitely, we've always been moving away from the rehabilitative aspects of criminal justice and we focus more on retribution. Mm-hmm. And that goes into back into what I was saying about that larger picture and how perceptions can shape realities. Because if you look at how we are misportrayed, uh, is justified. Uh, I follow um, in social media, I, uh, I look at different aspects. I look at conservatives. I look at liberals. I look at the quote-unquote moderates. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting all the different viewpoints. Uh, I watch 
I watch Fox News Sunday. I watch Meet the Press. You know, then I watch Face the Nation on Sundays. You know, I'm giving like three examples, but they have slightly different viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And even on uh, Facebook, social media, I follow, you know, the Fox News page. And because the commentary gives you a lot of insight. Right. About people's state. Yeah. Right. Black Lives Matter. No matter what. I mean, there are people to this day. They still say that Zimmerman was justified in killing Trayvon. Oh you know, God. oh, that that thug was probably up to something. He right. <laughs> when has ever being up to something been justification for somebody to die? That's something I will never be able to wrap my head around. And I'm glad you brought up justice because, you know, within my work, one of the things that I've really started to struggle with is whether or not justice is even really a thing. Because say, you know, the stuff with Trayvon Martin, say that Zimmerman went to jail and he was prosecuted and he got whatever sentence that he got. It doesn't take away from the fact that they no longer have a son. It doesn't take away from the fact that they still have pain. It doesn't take away from the fact that they've seen live footage of their child being killed. It doesn't take away from the PTSD. It doesn't take away from any of that. If anything, I think it allows them the opportunity to finally grieve. But I think when we go so deep into justice because we feel like we deserve it. And I do believe that we do. But in the same sentence, I think we put a lot of effort into that and it doesn't allow us to grieve. It doesn't allow us to be in a space where we're able to say, this is what happened, you know, to my son, or this is just what happened to me in general. And, you know, I need to be able to deal with that. I need to be able to face how that's affected me and and how I view life now and how I see the world and how I see other people. And, you know, I I really struggle with that. Like, I want everybody to get justice, but I also want everybody to be able to have their time too. And I think when we start pushing stuff in the media, you have to consider other people's commentary because everybody knows the commentary makes any post more entertaining, which is unfortunate, but it does. And so just to think of all the factors that goes into seeking justice and the additional layer of emotions that it places on people is heartbreaking to me. It just really is. And I I don't know, you know, what to do about that or if there is anything to do about it. But I, I think the more that, you know, certain things are put into place, the more that we train people to understand how to interact with people, the more that we push cultural competence because that's very important. And the more that we are aware of our own biases and our own prejudgments and our own discrimination habits, I think we can get to a place where hopefully at some point, we don't even have to have these conversations. We don't have to prepare you to walk outside. We don't have to worry about if I'm walking down the street that somebody's going to look at me as if I'm going to harm them or rob them or do anything to them that I probably never even thought about. See, but that's also too, um, because of your background, I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of otherness though, right? No, enlighten me. Oh, basically, uh, the otherness or the other is no matter what group of individuals you have, we are always, because of who we are, we're always going to find a reason to label someone else as an other and therefore different from us. And as a result, uh, seen as less deserving of being treated as an equal. So I've done a whole paper on it. This was a long, long ago because it fascinated me and my was like, no, no matter where you go, because of who we are, we're going to find a reason to label someone as his other. And wow. I'm, yeah, it's enlightening, but at the same time, it's just like, man, it's disheartening come on. because even if yes, it isn't us, it's going to be somebody else. 
Right. It's always going to be somebody. I mean, you look at the Cro-Magnons and the Neanderthals and, you know, it's always going to be somebody yeah. else. You know, look at those people over there. Right. And I know that we're talking about our culture, but I, with you saying that, like I recognize that every culture, every race has their own struggle that they have. But like even down to the, that being a thing that like even if it isn't us, now it's somebody else. Right. Like right now, if you look at it, I mean, putting it in a modern context, uh, even though there are, you know, African-Americans that use uh, the term queer who are Muslim, right, who, mm-hmm. who study Islam. Right now, Muslims are the, the hot, quote unquote, other or, the, yeah. you know, the ones who they're not us. So therefore, we must be hyper vigilant how we observe them and Every one of those people, they're out to get us. So we must band together. And to take it further, you even see, let me back up for a minute, stand with the Muslim thing, but also to I want to add the, uh, the, the people of Spanish descent, mm-hmm. you know, who, may, who are coming from, you know, maybe Mexico and parts of Central America. You hear, oh, I'm just trying to keep America safe from those people, be it either, you know, Muslim invaders Oh, I'm sorry, Muslim terrorists or 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 Mexican invaders, and I'm using Mexican broadly because that's the one you you most often hear in reference to that. So those are creations of of other others, for lack of a better term. So you're always gonna have it. Unfortunately, I mean, ideally, we should be striving as a collective. I mean, people, you know, not just a black collective or you know, Latino or Latinx collective. Or a white elective, pick your elect, you know, your, your collective, and but as a collective of people, just people, but we can't seem to get that get to that point. So right now, they're they're setting them up to be the next others, and you know, I'm not saying that oh, because of that, we're going to have this wonderful world where all of a sudden black people aren't catching as much hell as we've been catching in America because, oh, now the, the, the Muslims are catching it and, you know, oh, the, you know, the Latinx people are catching it because there's always going to be some type of differentiating factor used as justification of some of the atrocities that we, that we put upon each other. And I'm saying, I mean, even going back to the motherland, you know, going back to Africa, depending on what tribe you were in, you were the other. I mean, it's still going on now. So I know I'm taking it I took it briefly global, but I didn't mean to do that. But but it's okay because it's still people of a minority, right? Yeah. Exactly. And because of their that minority, then whatever you know, they 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 got it coming. Wow, way of the world. So if you had, if you were like on, if you had a platform and you were able to say like, this is the one thing that you know I can do or that we can do as a culture to fix it, whether it's us as a people within our culture or just for the world and things that we can do for other people to see, what would you think that one thing would be to change the amount of deaths that we're having in murders, if I want to put it frankly, of our young Black boys or our young boys of color? I don't know if I could come up with one thing. It would probably be like a multi-pronged attack. Like I said, I, I, I want to go back to what I was saying earlier. A lot of it's not on us. Yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of it's on the, the people who are doing the actual victimization. You know, because uh, going, I'm this. All right, I'm going to touch on like, say, for example, respectability politics. For example, mm-hmm. right? Well, if you if you dressed a different way, if you weren't so loud, you know, if you weren't so hoodish, you know, 
or however, pick, pick your turn. Right. Then you, then people will treat you a different way. I've seen, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. I've had on a hoodie, I've had on my 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 Tims, and I've you know I've had people clutch their purses. I've had on uh, my reading glasses and a Snoopy tie, mm-hmm. and people still clutch their purses. So a lot of times, it's not an issue of what we can do. It's an issue of other individuals and other groups taking it upon themselves to educate themselves about their attitudes and their biases. And a lot of them won't even do that. So therefore, how far can we get? Because we can work on the things that we can work on on our, on our end. But at the same time, at, until those other groups start working on what they can work on, mm-hmm. and since nine times out of ten, they control the courts, you know, they control the power structures, they control the legislatures, they're the ones putting things in place. I don't really know how much, and I'm not saying as a cop out, or you know, I'm not, I don't have an answer, but I'm just saying any answer that we come up with collectively as a group is going to have to take into consideration that these individuals over here, because of their control of the majority of the structures, they're going to have, the the impetus is on them to change how they approach us. That's more than it is on us to approach them because like the kid uh, a couple of years back, he was the, the pharmacy student at UVA you know, he was an honor student. I think he was in a fraternity. He got beat down. I forgot the reason, but basically he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he got beat down by the cops. And even then people were blaming him for it. And it was like, he, he's just a thug. And it's like, this kid's got like a three. Yeah, like a, I don't remember his exact GPA, but it was three points, something, something, something. It was, yeah, it was high. Right. You know, he's a pharmacy student. They showed a picture. He had his little glasses on, little bow tie and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you can't get more respectable than that. Yeah. So at the same time, what can, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything, but I don't know what can we really do when yeah. it's not so much our responsibility. I mean, think about it. Martin Luther King, whatever you want to say about his, his his other things that he did in his personal life, in his public life, you can't get any more respectable than MLK. I mean, when you bring up Martin Luther King, it makes me think of like Malcolm X too. But what I think and what they started that I think that we can in some shape or fashion continue, and that may just be in the advocate in me. But I think just being able to be in a space where we can have open and transparent conversations about our experiences and for people to see us from a humanistic standpoint and not from a standpoint of I'm a threat to you. I think if we can do that, because I've had conversations with people you know, with, you know, white individuals where we are able to speak freely and it makes so much more of a difference to feel like you're able to do that. And I'm not saying because I'm realistic and I realize that everybody's not going to be in that headspace and not going to be able to do that. But I do think when we're able to do that, that we can start somewhere and that's probably where we can start. It's just being able to have those open and transparent conversations and everybody come into the conversation knowing that there are probably some things that are going to trigger you and potentially make you feel attacked. But that's not the case and that's not the point. The whole point is for us just to have conversations and just to share my experience and you share yours and us figure out how do we come to a common understanding so that everybody can just live life being the human that they are and not have to worry about threats to their lives on a daily basis. Exactly. That's mine. I don't know how realistic it is, but I mean, I think it's already happening in some places and I think good things have come out of that. I just think it needs to happen more. 
that part right there needs to happen more. Yeah. Yeah. It needs to happen more. And and right now, until we can figure it out, it's going to take it's gonna be a long, involved, drawn out process, especially when you have uh people who who can benefit and who can I mean literally profit from the divisions who have no interest or they have no stake in in eradicating these differences and eradicating these biases. If anything, these biases are gonna bring them more, to be blatantly honest, wealth and power. Right. That's that's the real challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a long road, but I, I have hope. I I pray by the time that, you know, my children grow up that maybe we'll be I don't have children now, but when I do have them, you know, I pray that we're in a space in this world where at least that's able to happen and we're able to have conversations and have more of an understanding and everybody advocate for being human and not being and I know some people think that's cliche. Oh, I don't see color. I get that. I can't not see color, but what I'm saying is just for us to recognize that we're all human at the end of the day. We all have the same biology. We all bleed the same color blood. Like, that's just what it is. And realistically, we all share the same emotions. Yeah, but a lot of times, also to that whole, I don't see color. A lot of, it, it sounds all high-minded and, and, and it sounds like, oh, I'm so elevated that I've evolved beyond, which sounds great on paper. But a lot of times, it also too masks a, a, a bias in and of itself. Because I, I can't see the color or I don't see color or I don't see class and everybody's the same. We're all not the same. Right. And I'm not saying that to say and it's like, you know, uh, some people are better than other people. What I mean is that we're not treated the same in this world that we move through. Now, if you're saying your ideal is not to see color and not to see people uh, as, 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 as having challenges that other people don't, don't have. Because sometimes when you hear, I don't see color, some people hear this, oh, that's high-minded and that's very idealistic, which it yeah. is. How I said the same, but conversely, the converse of that is that I don't see your struggle that you uh, are engaged. Uh, right. I got struggle you. that you have is, you know, as, as, as a woman or I'm taking out outside of color, you know, as, as a black person, as a, a Latino person. Um, sorry, Latinx. I'm, I, I got to get that right. Uh, as, you know, or as a, a, a Muslim person. Or I don't see your struggle is is it, it, it limits it to only what you know and your paradigm, and that's a normalization based on the the the, the, the paradigm of the majority. So therefore, you're in a way you're backdoor discriminating because you're saying to this person, whether they're black, Latinx, Muslim, Jewish, or whatever, you should be able to fit into my paradigm and see the world through my experiences where my experiences aren't your experiences. Right. So it's a, it's a willful blindness in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's a good point. I never thought about it from that perspective. I think, I hope, my hope is, you know, from this conversation that people are able to see another perspective. People are able to see the toll that it takes on the culture as individuals, the toll that it takes on our families. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, hopefully, take that into consideration and start I always say it always starts with one person and one conversation and if you're the one listening today you can be that one person and be able to have you know the conversation with the people around you and start changing the narrative because that's honestly how it starts um which brings me to how I always like to end the show which is the portion that I call let's advocate and so my question to you is that if you could change one thing about the state of mental health within our culture, what would it be? 
Oh, that's easy. Removing the stigma. Oh, what would that look like? When people, it's a variety of different ways you can come at it. Uh, since we're talking about the culture, one of the big ones for me was there's a couple. Uh, one is saying, uh, you know, for especially in, in, in black culture, if you using depression because that's quite that's quite uh, prevalent. It's more prevalent than people realize or want to admit. Right. Uh, when you have the, uh, depression, a lot of you know people see that as just being you know stop being so weak you know or right. man man up man you know up. Uh, mm-hmm. you know whoa a woman up you know just do what you got to do. And sometimes people don't even realize. And somebody pointed this out to me, and I wish I could remember who it was because I'm fortunate enough to know that I know I, I do know a few therapists and I'm, I feel fortunate for that. But there's this thing where what's your one big thing? And that could be the one thing that, you know, somebody else may see it as, well, that's what you're supposed to do. But for you, the simple fact that you can get it done, it may be uh, a, a everyday simple gesture to person A, but to person B, it may be an insurmountable obstacle. And for right. them to get it done, it's an amazing achievement, right? You know, so some people they don't even see that. Like, um, oh, just just get up, get it up. You know, when I, when I feel sad, I just get up to do what I have to do. And it's like, and this that right there. It's like the person is not just feeling sad. It's a yes, it's a you're the therapist. I'm, I'm right. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, but, but yeah, but you know, yeah, it's an overwhelming. Like depression comes with a lot. It's not just like I don't want to do things. It's sometimes I physically can't. Like right. it has taken exactly. over the biology of my body and the way that my brain works and the way that I view the world on a daily basis. And sometimes it may even mean that your body is physically in pain. Like people don't Mm -hmm. realize that. Yeah, a lot of times mental health diagnoses, depending on what they are, can be very debilitating and can take away a lot. And I'm glad that you said change the stigma because I was watching um, a friend sent me a video on Instagram not too long ago where someone who is a very known Instagram personality talked on depression and their viewpoint basically was like, you know, that they believe in God, which I get that because I believe in God too. But it was like, you know, I believe that, you know, God can do anything and you just, you just got to change your mindset. You just got to do this. You got to do that. And basically that depression wasn't real kind of thing. Like you make the decision whether or not you're depressed. I got where he was going with it, but his delivery was all wrong. And it's like, it makes people feel misunderstood. It makes people feel less likely to, you know, want to open up to people so that they can't be vulnerable because it's comments like that that shows that there is a lack of understanding. And when it comes to mental health and the stigma, I think a lot of that starts with compassion and understanding and recognizing that my struggle is not your struggle and your struggle is not mine. And my struggle looks different from yours and vice versa. And how it feels for you is going to feel different for me. And I have to respect and acknowledge that and recognize that this is how it affects you. Exactly. Exactly. And another one, since you brought up God, is, and this is always, always, always one of my big pet peeves, is that people say that, um, especially in the Black community, a way, this is, and it ties into the stigma against uh reaching out to therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists, any type of mental health, that you don't need therapy. You just need Jesus. Uh-huh. You know, that's a that's an old one. That's an old one. But it's, one. it's still very prevalent. 
today. It's, I know, exactly. And I actually went to church recently and mm-hmm. it was a new church. I was just visiting and um, they kind of started touching on certain mental health diagnosis and I couldn't help but just feel like, oh my God, like, here we, here we tell go. tell me right. we're not going down this route. And it was a very yes, old are. school, you know, based. So I got it. It was just like, this. we, we have to stop. We have to stop making people feel judged for things that they cannot control. And that's and that's the thing right there. You know, is you have to just pray hard, you know, flush those antidepressants, you know, those anti-anxieties, whatever you have, just mm-hmm. flush them and just, just lean in closer to Jesus. Let Jesus take the will. You know, you don't know. And I mean But guess what? Yes. Faith without works is dead. Ain't that what the Bible say? Ain't that what the Bible say? It is that's what, what the Bible it does say. say. <laughs> it is what it says. It is faith without exactly. Exactly, you know, and so I, I mean, actually, I think, well, I'm not going to go there, but <laughs> that's always been one of my biggest pet peeves and to know that it's still prevalent in a lot of churches in, in Black America is just so frustrating to me. Yeah. And that ties to that larger picture, you know, be stronger mm-hmm. and, you know, just, just soldier on, just, just pray hard. Yeah. But then that, that, that takes a person who may be going through depression or anxiety, whatever other mental challenges and mental health challenges they may be having. Yeah. That just takes it and just adds a whole other level on it because not only now, not only are you depressed, anxious, uh, you know, insert mental uh, challenge here, but now you're also feeling worse than you already felt because somehow, some way, I'm falling short as a quote-unquote Christian. Right. Oh, don't worry. I have a whole episode around that topic, mental health in the church. I do. Oh. And we're going to get oh. all into it. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be good. I'm, I'm excited about it, but... I'm excited too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm excited about this conversation that we just had. I feel really good about it. It gave me a lot of feelings. And anytime I have a lot of feelings recorded, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is good. So I hope listening, you know, the audience listening, that y'all are really able to receive this information. And like I said earlier, to be that one person that starts to make the difference because it really, that's really all it takes. Just being courageous enough to stand up and advocate for somebody outside of yourself and for yourself. So I really encourage everyone to do that. And I really thank you for coming on with me and having this conversation. Um, I was actually really excited about you coming on because I knew that you would give a lot of stuff that people may not know. So <laughs> it's good no, to have I'm knowledge. Glad. It's good to have knowledge. I appreciate it. I'm honored that you would even invite me to come on. I'm ex- I was excited too. I was nervous. I was nervous. I don't do this a lot. Yeah. I can put me in a room full of people and say, talking about constitutional law all day and I can mm-hmm. you know, nonstop, but this is different. So I was yeah. I'm glad. I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, this hits home, so it makes it a lot different. But As always, guys, thank you for tuning in to the Cult for the Culture podcast. And I look forward to you guys tuning in for the next episode. And I will catch you guys later. Bye, y'all. For more information about the show, events, or if you have any questions, you can find us on Instagram at Healthy Pleasures, Inc. And visit us at www.healthypleasuresinc.org. Cult for the Culture is a production of the Minority Trailblazer Network. Check out more shows, events, and merchandise at MinorityTrailblazer.com.